have a dream that one day we shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields and in the streets, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender. The Historian's Magazine Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Historian's Magazine Podcast. This edition, this series, is a special Chalk Valley History Festival series. And because of that, we will be running no adverts for the duration of this series. So sit back and listen to myself and the other team members speak to some amazing historians from the Chalk Valley History Festival. Hello and welcome to the Historian's Magazine. I'm Jackson Van Newton, host of your magazine. Today we're joined by Frank DeCotta. How are you doing, Frank? I'm okay. Glad to be here. <laughs> yeah, oh, thank you very much for coming on. Personally, personally, I'm really excited to have you on the podcast. Great. Um, for those who know, I, I love researching about China and, and learning about China. Good, good, uh, good. So I'm really excited to have the chance to talk to you. Okay. So this week at Chalk Valley History Festival, mm. you're, you're talking about your new book, China yes. After Mao, The Rise of a Superpower. Would you kind of mind giving us a taste of this topic? Um, Yes, I think that we have been told for some 30-odd years by China watchers and others that somehow the People's Republic of China, after Chairman Mao dies in 1976, has um, undergone a whole policy of reform and opening up. Those are the key words. That's yeah. the official policy. Reform and opening up. The 40th anniversary of this was celebrated a few years ago. Starts in 1978 with Deng Xiaoping. Um, and I believe it has been largely misinterpreted. It has been interpreted by a great many as a sort of success story based on a transition. A transition at two levels. First, away from the plan towards the market, away from socialism towards capitalism on the one hand. And the other transition is the belief somehow, among many China watchers, that with economic reform, inevitably there will be political reform. Well, in the case of political reform, we are still waiting. I think that, that's pretty clear. That's pretty <laughs> yeah, abundantly. Clear. Yeah. But what is less clear is that, in fact, we are still dealing very largely with a socialist economy. In fact, one of the things that Deng Xiaoping does in 1982 is inscribe the, the so-called four cardinal principles in the constitution of the party. And these four cardinal principles, I'm not going to repeat them yeah. for you, but they really boil down to two basic principles. One is a firm hand over power, a monopoly over power, in other yeah. words, a Leninist principle. And the other one is a commitment to following the socialist way, in other words, a Marxist approach. So what is a Marxist approach? Well, in Marxist parlance, the state must control the means of production. Means of production is anything that goes into the production process. Could be land, belongs to the state to this very day. Could be capital, belongs to the state, bank states, to this very day. Uh, Could be labor, no unions, no protection, etc., etc. Could be raw materials, could be energy, which can be provided by the state at massive discounts. So what you have is not so much a move away from a socialist economy, uh, what you have is a, a, an attempt to make it work much better. And I think they okay. succeeded. But it yeah. remains a socialist economy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can definitely see that success with that system. Yes. But I, I definitely want to ask, because you know, Deng Xiaoping is such a, mm. a big figure in Chinese history, certainly in the post-Maoist China. Mm. Why is it important for us to, to learn about and study 
the post-Maoist period? Because I definitely think Chinese history is very Mao-centric or even ancient-centric. Yes. Well, for one reason would be, again, that Deng Xiaoping is portrayed as a sort of architect of reform, the man who somehow led China towards this miraculous growth. Whereas, in fact, if you read the book, you'll find out that it's not so straightforward. Every decision they make has unforeseen consequences. Some of these economic reforms in the 1980s, for instance, lead to massive inflation. We're talking about 48% inflation. I think right now yeah. you have something like 9 or 10% here in Britain. Yes. You're not too happy about no, it. No, no. <laughs> Imagine 48%. I don't think I'd be particularly happy no. with 48 <laughs> Plus, the vast majority of people who live in the countryside uh, are no longer paid by the Bank of Agriculture because it's bankrupt as a result of these economic, uh, so-called economic reforms. There is a scramble for money by party members yeah. resulting in a, an agricultural bank of China which is bankrupt and can no longer pay villagers that are given IOUs. Now, this is the background for 1988. <clears throat> you know what happens in 1989. Yeah. Tiananmen Square... 200 tanks, 100,000 soldiers sent into Beijing to crush the, the population. But that is not just confined to students and intellectuals. This is a widespread discontent with this whole system. So that is the result of the so-called economic reforms in yeah. the 1980s. Well, that's an, an utterly unintended consequence. And there are many others. Let me give you another example. Um, Marx when he's alive, 1840s, 50s, if you want to ship stuff from Manchester to Lancaster, it's reasonably straightforward. In the 1980s, to this very day, if you wish to ship stuff from Suzhou to Shanghai, very difficult. Why is that? Because instead of creating a unified, integrated national economy, these economic reforms have led to independent fiefdoms erecting all sorts of barriers against others to protect their own resources and to promote their own products. Uh, all of this matters a great deal. Again, unintended consequences. To, to some extent, the whole book is about unintended consequences. To come back to Deng Xiaoping, he is the architect of the, the disaster of 1989. One of the greatest, most ruthless crushing of people uh, one has seen in the socialist camp. You know, you got to remember Hungary, Budapest, 56, uh, Czechoslovakia, Prague, 68. These were not local tanks that were used. Yeah. Uh, they were Soviet tanks and allies. But what you have here is just Chinese tanks used on Chinese people. So it's quite yeah. horrific. Now, if you want to ask me who is the key person who matters after Mao, who is the one who built the, P the PLC as we know it today? It's not Deng Xiaoping at all. He's a minor figure. It is Chiang Zemin. It is Chiang Zemin who, who really builds up the structure that we have to this very day. So what is that structure? Massive emphasis on huge giant conglomerates where, where thousands of small state enterprises are are merged into giant conglomerates directed by Beijing. That is one result. Another one is that from the year 2000 onwards, Jiang Zemin insists on having party cells, even in small private enterprises. Yeah. So the party is more ubiquitous, ubiquitous than, than ever since the death of Mao. There was all sorts of, of, of usually important changes that take place 
from 1992 until Jiang Zemin steps back uh, some 10 years later. Uh, those are the ones that matter. So the 90s rather than the 80s, I think, is, is what brings us to where we are today. Yeah, and I certainly, I certainly agree with that that Zheng Xiaomin is one of the most understated figures in that in that whole period. Um, and it's really interesting that you see '89 as that that crux, that moment, mm. uh, as I've certainly seen it in certain texts described as the most totalitarian moment mm. in in Chinese history. Now, I really want to ask you, you know, we've been looking at the '80s, we're looking at the '90s. How does this study? inform our understanding of China today under uh, Xi Jinping? Okay, it's a big question. The short answer is that it is very tempting uh, to imagine uh, that if Xi Jinping were to somehow vanish overnight, become ill or go on a long holiday, (laughs) then somehow things will go back to normal. They'll go back to to where we were before 2012. But the key point of the book is to show, to demonstrate, that Xi Jinping is a natural outgrowth, is a natural outcome, is a a natural, if you wish, conclusion of what happens in the 80s and the 90s. What, What he does is what others would have liked to do but couldn't. You got to remember that when Mao dies in 1976, is at the end of 10 years of cultural revolution, which has badly damaged the structure, organization uh, of the Communist Party of China. It has to be rebuilt, and that takes a very long time. So it is not that Deng Xiaoping or Chiang Zemin are somehow tender individuals with greater respect for their own people, unlike Xi Jinping. It's simply that they would like to do what Xi Jinping does, but can't. In fact, if you look at the book carefully, you will see that by 2012, when Xi Jinping comes to the fore, China is already an extremely well-entrenched dictatorship. The cameras don't appear under Xi Jinping. They appear from 2008 onwards. Liu Xiaobo is not arrested under Xi Jinping, the Nobel Prize winner. He's arrested uh, in 2009. The attack on the internet, the firewall, all of this predates Xi Jinping. It's just more of what was there already. It's a sharpening. It's a sort of making sure that the screws are nice and tight. Yeah, it's a bit like that Fang Show cycle, yes. uh, the tightening of that, which I find yes. uh, really interesting. And yes. you know. I think for me it's important to not forget that Xi Jinping is a, a victim, his family are a victim of what happened previously under Mao. And, um, well, okay. yes and no, but I, I hear this quite often. You see, let's say that he is a victim. The key point surely is that at one point during the Cultural Revolution, uh, Mao does something that no other communist leader has ever done. He allows ordinary people, you and me, to actually denounce violently any party member all the way up to the very highest leaders in the country. Mao calls this bombard the headquarters. Yeah. He, he doesn't want red guards to go and you know, denounce some local factory boss. Yeah. He, wants to, he wants them to attack his colleagues, which is precisely what happens. So a great many leading families become victims of the Cultural Revolution. What is their conclusion? What is Xi Jinping's conclusion? 
The conclusion is that people must never be allowed to speak out again. Ordinary people must never be allowed to criticize party members again. That's the conclusion. And that's what they set out to do quite well. Deng Xiaoping with tanks in 1989, Xi Jinping with modern technology. But the people remain quiet, silent. Yeah, it, it definitely shows that how formative that was for him. Now, I, I want to ask you, you know, from your book, from your talk in this podcast, uh, what do you think is one main takeaway that people should, should have? Un- the importance of unintended consequences. Yes. Extremely important. I mentioned uh, Tiananmen Square 1989. Another one might be the one-child policy with the declining population. Not only unintended consequences, but also the utter instability and unpredictability of some of these regimes where a decision can be overturned from one day to the next. The Soviet Union is our best friend, becomes an enemy uh, a few years later. Massive lockdowns, stringent. People locked up for months on end, from one day to the next, no lockdowns at all. People free to go wherever they want without any contingency measures at all. A complete reversal. Just the sheer unpredictability of regimes uh, very much dominated by the whims of a single individual. Uh, I, think that's a, I think that's a fantastic takeaway for yeah. people to have. Now, on this podcast, the Historians Magazine podcast, we like to ask our guests two fun questions um, for them. Now, the first one is if you could go back to any event or era in yeah. history, what would it be and why? <laughs> it, it wouldn't be an event and it wouldn't be an era in the sense that I spent the first 20 years of my career working on the first uh, half of the 20th century, Republican China, and the last 20 years on, you know, post-49. But there is, a, there, is a, there is a particular type of archive that I would love to dig in, although, of course, they're not available. Yeah. <laughs> and that is all the archives that would detail the relationships not between the party and the people, which which I have done, yeah, but between the top leaders themselves, how they behave among themselves as families, as colleagues, as friends and as enemies. In other words, what happens among that red aristocracy? That would be fascinating. Yeah. I think that's a fascinating answer. Proper historian's answer, I think. Oh, thank you. <laughs> and then uh, the second question is, if you could take someone from history and bring them back or bring them forward to today uh, and show them something or take them anywhere who would it be and why well it probably wouldn't be the good old chairman Mao (laughs) (laughs) I mean this may sound rather selfish but I guess I would um, bring my grandfather back to life oh that's a that's a lovely answer yes I like that one he yeah. was an inspiration to me. He was a professor of mechanics when mechanics mattered in the yeah. 1950s. 
I, I think that's that's probably my favourite answer that I've heard so far on this podcast. So thank you for that. Thank you. Now I want to give you this space um, to, t- uh, to talk to our listeners and, and mention anything or any projects that you have that you want them to go away and you know they can go away and interact with, buy, uh, have a look at, but also where they can find you online. Well, I, I have a, a website um, and it gives quite a few details. It's I think very simple. It's something like uh, www decutter.com or so it's very easy to find and it's got a little summary of, of all of all all of my books including the trilogy people's trilogy including china after mao so that might be a little bit of a, an appetizer yeah. for potential readers i mean from my personal experience um you know if you read any of frank's work you you just you simply get drawn in Thank um you. Uh, my my personal favorite of your work is um I have it before they change the title, uh, Dictators. Um, so I think that's a great place to start for anyone wanting to, to dive into your work. Yes, thank you. <laughs> well, thank you very much for coming on, Frank. I really great. appreciated it. Okay, very good. Uh, and, and good luck with your talk tomorrow. Thank you. That's thank right. Thank you. Thank you.